on the Pilot TV podcast this week, we find ourselves entirely unrepentant. Why? Because The Sinner Season 3 has finally arrived on British screens. And, quite frankly, we regret nothing. We're also taking a trip to a fizz-pop bubblegum interpretation of 18th century Russia with Elle Fanning in Star's plays The Great and then catching a connecting flight to the Antipodes to brave the wild west of New Zealand in the Beebs adaptation of Eleanor Catton's Booker Prize-winning novel The Luminaries. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that is thrilled we can now spend the night at the house of a loved one during this lockdown period. And the reason why Boyd and I are in the process of packing up our things to take up residence in Terry's living room. Because joining me today, as always, are my dynamic duo of fabulous bellends, my very own support bubble, hailing from his all-seeing television penthouse in the heart of London, is a man whose byline picture shall henceforth be a rudimentary line drawing, but only so that I can refer to him as Badly Drawn Boyd. Wow, that's good. <laughs> that's one of my favourite introductions. Badly Drawn Boy has a new single out, by the way, which is very good. Just FYI. I didn't know that. Yeah. There you go. See, this turns out this is quite timely. Yeah. Well, also, Excellent. in Morrison's last week, somebody approached my boyfriend and asked him if he was, in fact, Badly Drawn Boy. Oh, amazing. <laughs> to be fair, your boyfriend does have the style of Badly Drawn Boy, which I feel is a compliment as well, because I think Badly Drawn Boy is a, bit of a, is a bit of an icon. Well, he also has the face and the hair. And the everything else of, of badly drawn. Does he wear boy. woolly hats? He does, and I do. Um, sometimes when I'm um want to troll him, I just WhatsApp him pictures of badly drawn boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of loving Brilliant. girlfriend I am. You've already heard her, but of course, as ever, joining us from a land where mammoths roam the land and beasts of legend make their home, otherwise known as the feral wastes of Chesterfield, is a woman for whom depressing TV is the sweetest elixir, a venerable film and TV critic for whom every rainbow comes in seven shades of grey and ends in a bucket of shit. It's Terry White. <laughs> Can I just say, you are not coming in my sex bubble. Hang um, on. Oh, no, let me rephrase that. Let me, let me rephrase that. You start this by talking about you and Boyd coming to my house. You're not, you're not part of my sex bubble. I'm sorry. We are your bubble, Terry. What <laughs> I mean, other bubble could you possibly have? Yeah. Can well, we just call it a support bubble, please? Yes, rather it's, than a sex bubble. Sex bubble. We all know it is. Wow. I think that was missed from uh, from Boris's reveal. But sure, I think reading between the lines, that may well be it. So uh, other than watching people talk about sex bubbles, what have you been witnessing on the box this week? I have been watching. So I've watched The Woods, which, um, yeah, the Harlan Coben Polish adaptation of his novel. And I have to say, it's really great. It's beautifully filmed, um, really interesting. It's kind of darker visually and tonally i would say than the the kind of british adaptations of harlan coben's novels that we've had on netflix and sky before so it's really interesting from that point of view um and uh, it's it's a really interesting story um i've watched the uh, next two episodes of i may destroy you michaela cole show that we all absolutely loved and reviewed last week and it gets even more fascinating and extraordinary as it goes on like structurally it's so interesting because she just Episode six has a big flashback involving a character that suddenly arrives in the episode. It's so bolt um, on top of the subject matter, on top of the um, generally the whole kind of conception of it. It is still so that gets keeps getting better and better. And but my big revelation of the week from <laughs> for myself, no one else, is I've done a complete reverse one eighty on Dave, which we reviewed a couple of weeks ago. Um, the uh, <laughs> Terry's shaking her head, listeners. Um, that 
we f- I think we all found annoying. Um, Terry, most of all, me, I, I found it quite annoying. It's the thing that stars the rapper Lil Dicky, as he's known. Um, and it's a very autobiographical, I mean, we reviewed it a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> but, my, but my fundamental point is about halfway through the series, it's 10 episodes and it's all on iPlay and it was shown on BBC Two. I thought I suddenly kind of got it. And I, I suddenly became more aware that he is much more self-critical about his character than I think you get from the first few episodes. And even though he's intensely irritating, that's kind of, he's making the point that he is intensely irritating and you're not, and in no way are you meant to be on his side and his girlfriend get, gets better and better her character. And the whole ensemble is fantastic. And as it goes on, like the last episode opens with this incredibly bold, like music video of this song jail that he's written, which is all about him ending up in jail for exposing his testicles at a live concert. And it is phenomenal. And it's, it's so brilliantly done. Um, I, I absolutely love it. Yeah. So I've gone compl- and now, now Dave has become one of my favorite things. Wow. That yeah. is unexpected. Yeah. Is I mean- it though? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Terry, what have you done a massive 180 on this week? You know me. I will never, never apologize, never explain, never go back on my word, even when it's wrong. Um, so I watched all four of um, Murder in the Outback, which is the Channel 4 documentary about the murder of Peter Falconio. Um, and they're showing it. Was it all Boyd? Was it like consecutive nights, or because yeah. they were showing it? Yeah, yeah, they showed they showed it on um, Channel Four on consecutive nights. I watched the first one live, and then realised they'd lobbed all of them up on four um, OD, four demand, whatever it's called. All four, all four, and jumped on there immediately, and just like stayed up all night watching them. Um, and I'm not quite sure why, because I'm still not convinced it's very good. Um, so I don't know if you two have seen any of this, but and for. For people who haven't read about it or don't or can't remember the case, it's the British man who disappeared on holiday in Australia in um, 2001. He was out in the outback with his girlfriend, Joanne Lees. Um, a man was convicted of his murder, Bradley John Murdoch, and the attempted abduction of Joanne Lees. But there was a lot of kind of speculation in the press at the time about um, she seemed shifty. They kind of judged the fact she didn't show emotion in public. Did she know more than she was letting on? And this documentary kind of tries to unpick um, why some people might think um, she knows more than she's letting on, why he might be innocent. Um, but it, it's weird because you, you get to the end of these four episodes and I kept going, to be fair, but I didn't learn anything new at any point you don't end it going oh now I feel like I've got more of a sense what might have happened they just kind of fling around these weird conspiracy theories there's a whole bit on whether he um faked his own death for like life insurance and it I mean where it's interesting is they kind of have all the original detectives there um some of the um kind of criminal experts who worked on it and there was a lot of kind of I felt like sexism around how women are supposed to behave in that scenario, how you're meant to cry on camera, um, how you're meant to seem. They said she seemed cold and, and things like that. That was kind of interesting to me, but it didn't really dig into that kind of narratively. It kind of let those guys hang themselves with what they said, but um, the Joanne Lees herself didn't have any part of it. The Falconio family weren't involved. Um, so many people feel like it's essentially trying to make a case 
for um, Murdoch to be kind of either retried or, or or cast doubts on his guilt, and his lawyer does feature in it heavily. Um, yeah, so I'm st- like I say, I'm not convinced it's actually very good because those documentaries <laughs> are meant to shine a light on something you don't understand or you didn't comprehend at the time or give new context or do something. But I just couldn't, I still couldn't stop watching it. Yeah, I watched the first episode and it did it did feel quite tabloidy and quite yeah. kind of yeah, like the way it was made, quite kind of in quotes basic. But having said but I did really did really want to watch the rest and yeah. I just haven't got around to it. It's just such a compelling story, isn't it? But mm. yeah, I thought the what the way the actual quality of the documentary was questionable, I have to yeah. say. Yeah. Which I was surprised at for yeah. for channel channel four tend to do those things yeah. quite well, but, but- yeah. They're on a big true crime push. In fact, we sh- I, I was going to mention how on Monday, when on the day this podcast comes out, is Murder in the Car Park is the next three-part documentary, which they're not showing consecutively, which is but they are showing weekly. And that's about the 1987 murder of Daniel Morgan, the private detective, which involves the news of the world and the whole – it's a huge, big um, unsolved murder that is also touches upon um, – you know, tabloid journalism in a huge way and, you know, the Murdoch Empire, etc. And that's going to be really fascinating, I think. Is it mm. by the same people? No, it's different no. people, yeah. So no reverse ferrets then for you, Terry? No, I'm afraid no. not. Okay. And I won't be watching Dave to see if I um, <laughs> if I misjudge based on that first episode. Who would it take? Who would if, if someone, like, you really respected and admired said they liked Dave, would you change your mind? No. Because <laughs> I really respect and admire you, boys. Oh, thanks. But, thanks. you know, yeah. not enough to, like, change no. my mind. Okay. If- Jarvis Cocker called you up <laughs> and said he's really into Dave. Mm. Would you watch it for him? No, I'd suddenly have very, very strong doubts about my my feelings towards Jarvis Cocker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, this is the thing. We should put together a playlist of stuff that you have to watch, and it should include Dave and Devs and all the things that you haven't liked. Once <laughs> yeah. and other things with one syllable beginning with D. <laughs> yes, well, exactly. I was Dick. I was kind of hoping when you said I've done a massive reversal on. D- um, I was like Devs. No, <laughs> no, no, that's. I mean, that's a fucking masterpiece. I'm never. Yeah. Yeah. Marvellous. Well, so I disappeared down a, a hole of shows that I've been meaning to watch for ages and hadn't this week. So I sat down on Monday and I thought, all right, I want to watch something. But I couldn't be bothered to pick up any of the things I've been watching. So I thought, fuck it. I'm going to start something that's from my list. So I started watching Another Life on Netflix. So uh, Boyd looking at me blankly. Terry always looks at me blankly. But this is uh, this is the science fiction show starring Katie Sackhoff of Battlestar Galactica <laughs> fame, uh, a Netflix original. Uh, it's had one season. There is another season in the works. Uh, and it essentially sees uh, Sackhoff as, as this uh, astronaut called Nico Breckenridge. And she has a young crew on a spaceship and they're going to an alien planet to have first contact with this alien race after this alien race sends a a mysterious probe thing to Earth. So baked in, couldn't be more James if it tried. Some off about Star Galactica, set in space, probably rubbish. I mean, this is absolutely me. And, um... I watched five hours of it, so I went through, and and I, I, it was one of these things where I was watching. It, I was like, you know what? It's it's fine. It's not great, but they, like, every episode ends on enough of a kind of teasy cliffhanger that you're like, oh, go on, then I'll watch another one. And I watched it up to the halfway point in the series where there is a threesome for absolutely no reason whatsoever, and I turned it off because of that. The threesome, which is that was the last straw. I couldn't take anymore. I was like, no, that's it. I'm done. That annoyed me so much that I couldn't proceed with it. So I've given up on another life so that was the first thing i watched can i just say can i just interject to say i love the fact that 
You watched five hours, even though it was a bit shit. And then the thing that galvanized you after investing five hours in something a bit shit to actually turn it off was a threesome. You're such a brilliant prude. I love it. No, it's not. No, but it's not even the sex part. It's just from a character point of view, it made so little sense and it was so utterly stupid that it just it enraged me but anyway it's, it was these three engineers so, so so there's these three engineers and one engineer has been flirting with this other shy engineer whereas a slightly lechy laddie engineer has been cracking onto her all the time and then there's a sequence where she spoilers for threesomes um she she she's talking like the the this shy engineer is having a massive go at her about something legitimate and she and then he storms over and just sort of kisses her she's clearly been wanting to for ages and they kiss and then the other one the really cocky one the arrogant one is like looking on and just feels a bit awkward and he goes to leave and you think oh fair play he's a bell end got what he deserved you know shy guy made his move all fine and then she turns grabs the bell end's hand and goes kiss me and then kisses him as well and i was like okay what is happening? This is ridiculous. <laughs> this show is rubbish. I'm not doing it anymore. So, so, so the was threesome wasn't realistic enough for you. Have you seen threesomes yes. in TV and film? <laughs> They're not often grounded in realism. Do you know what I mean? I didn't I didn't buy the character motivations <laughs> that led to the threesome is what I'm saying. Apart from I'm, I May Destroy You, which has a few threesomes. Mm. Yeah, which enough. are probably far more realistic, I would well, think, uh, than this probably. one. Not probably. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they don't take place on the spaceship. Didn't we review our, uh, 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 Another Life? No, we didn't. Didn't we? we? Didn't. we may, I, I remember I, watching I, it. Oh, did you watch I, it? I watched the first episode and thought it was oh. utter trash. Yeah. I mean, I but, would um, never have, have missed this. Like, if we were reviewing it, I would definitely have reviewed it. But it only came out, like, last year, didn't it? So it's yeah, quite yeah it's quite recent. Like, it was in our lifetime. But I think it was one of these ones where we didn't review it for the show for one reason or another. Like, maybe it didn't come uh, up or whatnot. Okay. And then maybe you just watched it to catch up. Right, so, uh, right. Another Life is not worth it but so i then moved on to mr mercedes which has been on my list forever and i watched the first episode of that obviously we talked about it when we talked about uh the outsider um because they share a character and this i mean i'm sure you've seen this boy like the first episode the pilot of mr mercedes is like the opening of it which comes with a trigger warning is one of the most violent and upsetting things i've seen mm-hmm. on television so that was quite full on um and it's good it's slow burn but it's good i'm enjoying that and also i started berlin station have you watched berlin station with richard armitage first episode yeah kind of sort of sort of sort of gritty sort of um Mm. uh spy thing set in germany obviously in berlin um i'm enjoying that a lot actually it's got michelle forbes in it ensign rowe from sotter and next generation admiral kane from battle star galactica she's a fantastic actor so yeah i'm enjoying that there's only three seasons of that and it did get cancelled so it better fucking end properly or i will be very upset but i'm going to press on with that as well so i have watched all of these things none of which have involved any kind of you know reverse ferret but uh i shall press on with two of the three and that's what I've been watching. Shall we now move on to a question? Mm-hmm. Should we do a question? Let's, Let's do, a, do question. a question. Let's do a question. This, this week's question comes from Rob Lee. And it is, my girlfriend hates that I make her sit through the starting credits of everything we watch. Because in my opinion, that is how it is meant to be seen. Are you guys as strict or do you sometimes or always skip? Are there any programs that you will always watch the opening credits? Don't just say Game of Thrones. Now, the obvious answer to that is, of course, Game of Thrones, <laughs> because it has the greatest TV title sequence ever, because it reflects the contents of the episode. The music is extraordinary, and it's stunning to look at. End of question. Well, here's the thing. I think there's an age thing at play here, right? Because I thought about this. It has never occurred to me to skip the opening credits of anything, ever. And I think that's because when we grew up, we just, you know, had a box in the corner that you couldn't on that, tick, uh, on tick <laughs> that you couldn't that you couldn't fast forward through telly. I mean, fast forwarding through telly. If you'd have told little Terry that you could fast forward through telly, her mind would have been blown. Like, so it never it never occurs to me to skip it. And I agree. I think like 
the credits are there for a reason. They're there for a narrative reason. They're there for a tonal reason. I have never, ever skipped credits in my entire life. I'm with him. No, I mean either. But interestingly, Netflix does does now, unless you change your settings... It encourages you, Yeah, yeah it encourages it? you to skip them and does Amazon skip them for do. you unless you press a button. And I actually... Nine times out of ten, if I if I'm on it enough, I will halt Netflix's overriding of Me the credits too. and and make sure I watch the fucking credits. Yeah, completely. But uh, yeah, I, I agree. It's it's definitely like the mere fact they encourage you to not watch the credits is ridiculous. Is there a, is there an OCD element to this? Is there a sense that you know that you know I'm well? I've started this. I will watch. Every, do you watch the whole of the end credits too? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I'm not, I don't care who makes. Which I know is disrespectful. <laughs> no. um, I do watch. Yeah. I do watch all the end credits of films, but actually that's a good point because yeah. I don't watch all the end credits of TV shows, and I should. <laughs> that is disrespectful. It's like when you go to those uh, those press screenings of films in Cannes, and anyone who gets up for the end of the credits gets tusked and tutted and glared right, at. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so they the do BFR. walk out of films halfway yeah. through. True, half the time. true. Yeah. They're yeah. very French. They're not that respectful. <laughs> but I um, like. You can also miss stuff because they and Walking Dead does this a lot. Where they'll drop and Watchmen did it too. Where they drop end of credit stings for no, with no warning and mm. and irregularly, so you don't know they're there. Presumably just to see if you are being respectful of watching the credits. Well, Sharp Objects famously uh, and brilliantly has a whole thing in the credits incorporated yes. into the end credits of the, the final end of episode. The, final episode. the whole Absolutely. film, the whole thing is is revealed in the end yeah, credits. I know, which was incredible. Which yeah. is, and I'm sure a lot of people missed it as well. Yeah, um, well, I disagree with you about Game of Thrones. I actually think Westworld. I much prefer Game of Thrones as a show, but I think the Westworld credits are among the best ever. They're very. Good. I think it's very beautiful, very good. Yeah. and they change them for each season as well. And the last season's one, like the end, the, the opening credits of Westworld season three were much better than the season itself. I'd much rather watch <laughs> the opening credits repeatedly again and again than have to watch that uh, fucking trudge through the. Fr- tedious, increasingly <laughs> tedious season that it was. Another stunning score by Ramin Jawadi. Yeah, it's the sc- I think it's the two together, isn't it? It's the theme tune and mm. the and the beauty of the actual um, images yeah. that you need. And I, I think Westworld is way up there, definitely. See, I must admit, I am a credit skipper. Um, I will do it with every single TV show, with a few notable exceptions. I I did not. I used to mainly watch the credits on Game of Thrones because I never got bored of them. I almost always watched the credits on Dexter because I just thought those were sheer art. They were magnificent. Battlestar Galactica. I used to love the music and I used to like the credits of that. But I used to then, of course, shut my eyes during that little sizzle reel that it did, uh, where it tells you what's going to happen in the episode. Which I still don't understand why that's there. The Wire never used to skip that as well because, again, not only is it brilliant piece of music and brilliant little montage but the fact that it mixes up each season helps i think as well uh westwell probably true that i don't skip this credits on bosch actually it's got a little jazz riff on there that i really like so i watch that but stranger things another one really mm. really lovely sort of music which i like um uh but and and nine times out of ten the west wing i watch the credits but pretty much everything else i will skip it because i kind of feel like unless there's something exceptional about either the music the theme music or the credits once you've seen it two three four times it's become i don't need to see this again like i've i've experienced this particular bit of of creativity i'm done um you know i'm but, a bit of a credits fetishist i absolutely love them what's like, your favorite will, what's your all-time favorite oh i'm obsessed with them in films as well i will like the james bond credits i'll happily yeah. watch yeah. you know like all 
20 James Bond film credits in, in a row. But again, great um, music, great visuals. Yeah, but great TV ones as well. I'm fascinated by like Doctor Who. I've talked about Doctor Who. I think yeah. it's the best theme tune of all time. And Doctor Who credits. In the, in, in the last series of Doctor Who, they didn't have the opening credits in the first episode. I don't know if you remember, Terry. Mm. And they, so like they withheld you having the, uh, the new credit sequence until episode two. And I thought that showed you how important those things are. Like it, re- it was a really interesting. It was like, oh, why aren't they giving us the opening credits? Um, of the brand new series and it was mm. like deferred gratification and then you got them in the second episode and you're really excited about what, what the new version of the opening credits is going to be. The OA not having the opening credits until 72 minutes into oh, the first episode. Genius. So, you know, it was such a brilliant moment. So I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole, and the art, they've become more, now every single show on yeah. TV, every drama, like not comedy, because usually comedies are fairly, the opening credits are fairly kind of minimal, but Every every prestige drama now on TV has a lavish opening credit sequence, don't they? It's inc- it's become yeah. almost unbelievable how how lavish they are. Even like a two parter will have a, a an inc- seemingly you know multi million pound opening credits thing. <laughs> it's so a statement I'm fascinated of by the whole thing now, isn't it? Like it's become yeah. it's become almost like a calling card. Well, can I question yeah. James? Can I just question your assertion that Game of Thrones like? Can I can I confess that when I first watched Game of Thrones at your insistence, which was recently which and was, the only only the final season, and, the, and, and not all of that, and the credits was the first thing I saw, I was like, "What is this cheap hokey shit?" First of all, get out. Uh, we're going to have a two-person <laughs> podcast. Myself and Boyd will be continuing. Terry is now expelled from the Violet TV podcast. But season seven's credits are different to... like These the credits are significantly different in the final season than they are up to then, but they're still fucking cheap brilliant. As, I mean, honestly, like, oh, cheap what are you as, like? I was like, what is happening? What am I watching? Oh, and Terry. I don't think it was indicative of them, the glorious cinematic... It all takes place inside an astrolabe. It's fascinating. Astro what? Is that like, is that near a labia? <laughs> yeah. The astrolabe. Yes. The astrolabia. Yes, Terry. Yes, it is. Just north of the labia um, is the astrolabe. <laughs> <laughs> like, just getting this slightly back on track. Like, you remember, like, one of the first, I think, title sequences that really made an impact on me was The Sopranos, actually, mm. which is incredibly mm. oh, yeah. with that piece of music yeah. and the drive yeah, that Yeah, that was takes. legendary, yeah. That's an incredible, incredible. I mean, Mad Men's one is amazing Mad as well. Mad Men, brilliant. Yeah. Um, did you used to always sit through the Friends yeah. title sequence and, when you watched that? It was yes. so important. I I love how they changed the title sequence to kind of reflect the character's arc. That's the I may be reading too much into the Friends title <laughs> sequence, but if you look at like how Rachel's portrayed in later seasons, the arc of that character for the series is reflected in the opening credits, which I think is just genius for something like that—a half-hour comedy show—to mm. to cut together bits from the season to show. You know, that Rachel's now kind of meant to be more of a comedic character, I think is brilliant. The Simpsons was kind of one of the first, yeah. like, mm. must watch credits. Yeah. Wasn't Simpsons it? was incredible. Yeah. Because it used yeah. to vary every episode. And that's, and some of those, the Game of Thrones, one of those is incredible. It's a, it's a, it's a piece of art. Um, yeah, we've kind of Sherlock, now gone on to, always, Sherlock, I was always very yes. excited by Sherlock. Mm. It was so exciting. Just the great music, music and the again, imagery. Great music again. Yeah, um, but, but this is why I think when I saw, remember when we reviewed SVU, and not only did I think it was shit and from another time period, like the thing that bugged the hell out of me is the title sequence is so like decades ago in aesthetic, presumably deliberately because it's been going on yeah. for a long time. But again, it, it, it that immediately kind of set out the stall for me. Oh my God, this is TV from another era. Like this doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like proper telly, like proper telly now, which is arty and oh, expensive and But it's delightful. iconic, like that Chung Chung. We've talked about the Chung Chung before. That, which comes before the title sequence, is 
the vital bit of Law and Order SVU. That chunk chunk is a work of genius. Black screen logo, chunk chunk, and then the cre- mm-hmm. like genius. Yeah, no, I, I, I will, I will grant you that. From what little I've seen of Law and Order, that's quite an important sound effect. I've just remembered with comedy, Cheers had abs- was had a brilliant that song. Yeah, and the the um the artwork colorized thing ever. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But that, mm. that was brilliant. That really, that I mean, Cheers is fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's a great show, great show. That I um, I has to be said, and, and this is apropos of absolutely nothing other than you were saying iconic sounds. Uh, obviously, we've become famous on this podcast for our adoption of the term bellend as our, uh, our word of choice. Uh, I was rewatching Home season two this week, and um, uh, which this should really be in the what we've been watching section, and uh, the delivery, Yusuf Kirkle's delivery of the word bellend in a charity shop in season two yeah. is I. I think peak bellend. I think it is perhaps the best single deployment of that word in history. I need you to stop being a bellend. Sorry? I know. It is a small thing, but every little helps. Stop being a bellend. I tweeted it out and uh, Yusuf, bless him, replied just a second ago while we've been doing this podcast, which is what kind of oh. what's brought to mind, and said, having been called it for years, I had lots of practice. So... <laughs> It's Brilliant. very good. There's an imperceptible pause between the bell and the end that makes it so perfect. <laughs> anyway, we seem to have got off track slightly. So I will say, I will say, um, yes, I don't, I don't always watch these things to get back to <laughs> the hang on. What, yes. what was the question? Yes. What was the actual question? Let's go back to the question. The we've question, answered are, the question. Are we strict? Talk- do we sometimes always skip? You two don't skip. I sometimes skip. End of question. We've answered it. Thank you very much, Rob Lee. If you would like your question answered on the Pilot TV podcast, feel free to communicate it either to at Pilot TV Mag on Twitter via DM or to me directly via Twitter or Instagram at James C. Dyer. Right. Shall we move on to this week's news? And I think we begin with... Faulty Towers, which has seen, because there's no can of worms that this is going to open, which has seen the episode The Germans removed from UK TV, the channel, um, due to its, shall we say, slightly problematic language. So this isn't the first time this has happened. This is an episode of Faulty Towers that was famously not aired in Germany when the rest of the series was, because it was deemed offensive then, uh, and uh, it's been pulled now. I don't know what you two think about this. I completely understand why, because I've long said when people talk about language on TV, that particular episode of Faulty Towers contains a very specific piece of dialogue that I won't repeat by the major, which is quite shocking when viewed now. However, I feel a bit like this is one of those instances where it's well-meaning but a bit misguided because it now just shifts the conversation, this whole conversation about actually should we be lionising people who, you know, were slave traders and whatnot, and it becomes now a conversation about slightly trivial censorship and political correctness, which I feel has maybe shifted the dialogue in an, in an unhelpful direction. Well, I, I think there's an important clarification, first of all, which is everybody's reporting that it's been pulled, but UK TV tweeted a statement which said... Um, The episode contains racial slurs, so we are taking the episode down while we review it. We regularly review all the content, um, blah, blah, blah. Some shows carry warnings and others are edited. We want to take time to consider our options for this episode. So it may go back up having been edited. It may go back up with some kind of warning, um, which we know, for example, Disney Mm. Plus have been doing on a lot of their old content. Which you kind of have yeah, to, don't but you? Yeah, but I, I agree with you, right? So I think somebody um, tweeted earlier that actually, you know, it's quite distracting and tr- trivialising in some respects. And it's actually a kind of um, iteration of privilege for people to be sat there debating whether TV shows should be pulled off or not. And people kind of getting so passionate about that when the, you know, 
th- this all began that because of the death, the murder mm. of George Floyd, and that that's you know the the fight for um, racial justice, the fight for empowerment, the fight for all of these huge important issues that Black Lives Matter are spearheading as a movement. I I agree with you. But then on the other hand, I think, you know, it's probably not for us to say. I'm sure some people feel that that kind of language being aired or being accessible on a TV platform, does that build into microaggressions around, you know, around language and around what's permissible? Is I, I don't know if it's our place as, as three privileged white people to kind of be the people to make that decision on what's acceptable and what's not because those racial slurs are not being used about us. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think, it, you know, the, there are protests happening this weekend um, and there are such important things at stake. There are people's lives at stake. That's what mm. this is about. And it does feel like a kind of a, a, um, a consequence of privilege to even be sat probably us discussing this. I, th- I think having a, a warning at the beginning of it is not unreasonable. I also think, you know, were they to cut that particular scene, the episode would not, I believe, particularly suffer for it. I mean, the whole episode is about lampooning British xenophobia. Um, though, And that line, I guess, kind of feeds into that overall theme. But it is, I mean, it is quite shocking. But you do end up in a situation where, like, this is the whole of 70s comedy kind of falls into this particular basket, doesn't it? Like, problematic speech was pretty rife there. So I, I wouldn't like to see these things necessarily pulled from TV, but I think, you know, um, perhaps a, a warning wouldn't go, wouldn't go miss. But also, I think, I, think, I think you're right, but this is a very specific example as well, because actually this episode, the BBC, I believe, edited that line anyway, years ago with um john gleese's approval i did not know that um yeah so this is and i think this is a specific case of for some reason the uk tv version that they were using on their um uh like uh you know on the service where you can watch when you can watch it um like not when it's like goes out live on tv they've just got a wrong version that should have been edited and same with it's the version on netflix um apparently was the you should have been edited as well so there's i don't think there's any debate to edit out those words because yeah, it is it, it is offensive and even mm. though and even though the storyline of the episode is all about Basavolt's own bigotry and that's still there and I think that's fine. I mean, from you know, and I don't think any I haven't seen anyone complaining about it by the way. So this isn't you know as you say we are obviously we are three white people talking about it, but this is not a Black Lives Matter yeah. demand. No one was up you know, in arms the, about this episode. Yeah, no mm. one is exactly. But having said that. I'm absolutely. It, it makes sense that they do review these mm. things and they do make sure that offensive moments, offensive language uttered by white characters in the middle of, in in this particular context are removed. I think it's fine to mm. remove it, but as you say, it, is, it feels like it feels like a diversion to me because it's just not. It's just a separate from the whole the the mo- the incredible stuff that's happening. You yeah. know, th- huge changes are happening right now, yeah. and I think, as you say, this feel like a micro microaggressions are important to to acknowledge, but it's not the agenda, is it? Of and and uh, what worries me is in the me- in the right wing media, this is going to be you know, and in the all the political correctness gone mad bullshit. I tweeted about it last night saying I was I'd be fascinated to know the the processes, and I am fascinated mm. to know the processes that are happening within UK TV. You know, where someone's going, oh, by the way, we need to look at that episode of Forty Towers, blah blah. Blah, but that doesn't mean I want idiots going to me. Oh, it's political greatness gone mad, you know, <laughs> and it's Black Lives Matter gone mad, you know, because it's not their agenda. No, it's right, not. This particular thing, so it's an interesting moment. Yeah. It is, it is indeed. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think maybe had they just snipped that particular line and said nothing of it, it might have yeah. been the better course of action. You're right, but exactly. Of there we go.
Uh, any other news? Well, I wanted to mention how today, Friday, <laughs> um, uh, Dave Chappelle has dropped a surprise um, half-hour stand-up, new brand new stand-up show, um, for, which is which he recorded for Netflix. But Netflix have brilliantly put it on their YouTube channel, so it's free. So if you haven't got Netflix, it's free to watch on their YouTube channel, and it'll also be on actual Netflix as well. And um, it's called eight forty-six, which is the time it took for the for the white cop to murder um, George Floyd um, to have his knee on his neck. And it's an incredible half. So I just watched it first. Someone alerted me to it. And it's an, a classically brilliant Dave Chappelle. I think he's just the master addressing these issues and can, and, he, and he just kicks off. And by the way, this is filmed, you know, last week. Um, and it was filmed with lockdown rules, sorry, with social distancing rules being applied. So there's an audience need to record it outside. Um, it's so interesting. And they show you the beginning with the audience arriving and being told where to sit and all that. And he talks about lockdown and he talks about um, George Floyd and he talks about um, uh, police brutality, all, you know. And at the same time, he has really funny, classic Dave Chappelle observations about what's happening at the moment and, and, and life in general. And it's, so that's an amazing thing, I think. But just for just to, to respond, for him to respond and Netflix to respond to what's happening so quick and to do and to come out with this 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 great little half hour, well, not even little, this very interesting um, half hour thing I thought was brilliant. Sounds good. So that could have been in the What We Watch section, but yes. it kind of feels like news. Okay, it is both. It is both. We're blending sections today. We don't yeah. care. We're rogue. Yeah. Anyway... Here's the thing, here's the thing. Uh, Chernobyl's Johan Renk, the director of, uh, of Chernobyl, which we, of course, loved, has announced that he will be directing HBO's adaptation of the Last of Us video game series. Obviously, this is being uh, written, uh, or co-written, I should say, uh, and run by Craig Mason, who was uh, the creator of, of Chernobyl. So it's a big old Chernobyl fest. This, I'm sure, Terry, you have no idea what this is. This is, of course, based <laughs> on uh, the video game that I have been playing for the last few weeks, the sequel. I should say, I've been playing for the last few weeks. I published my review this morning, Friday, uh, and said very nice things about it. It is a masterpiece, The Last of Us Part Two. But this TV series, this is one of these things where I'm very torn on this TV series. Because on the one hand, I think it's an incredible piece of storytelling, and it's absolutely ripe for adaptation. And I can totally see how this first game will work across a series of television. However, it is so adept at telling this story and the actors who do the performance capture and the voices for these characters in these games are so incredible at it that I worry that it will in some way do a worse job as a TV show than it did as a game. That said, Neil Druckmann, who directed Last of Us Part Two and co-directed The Last of Us, is involved in this as well. So you would hope that he and the other people at Naughty Dog will will make sure that this uh, lives up to the name. But The Last of Us is one of the most incredible video games ever made from a storytelling perspective. Um, so, yeah, very interesting to see what they do with it. And I'm very glad, at least, that someone like Craig Mazin and, of course, now Johan Renk are involved because uh, these are good people and they've done very good work. So, fingers crossed. Anything else? Oh, like Kira Knightley's in a telly show, but I just don't care. No. <laughs> oh, that's harsh. That's harsh. This is the other typist, isn't yeah, it? There is, there, there is maybe not that much news this week, and I tried to, I tried to summon something to say about this, but um, she's in a TV show. It's her first TV show, though, isn't it? Really, her first major sort of TV her, thing. They're saying her first major, well, which I don't know what that means quite. And she did a voice role, I think, on a sci-fi show. And it was going to—it um, was originally meant to be filmed, but now it's been adapted for telly. Uh, mm. Yeah, it's a psychosexual suspense thriller. There you go. <laughs> 
about a typist. God, I hope there's no unrealistic threesomes in it. <laughs> I bet there fucking is. It feels like the kind of thing that would have unrealistic threesomes yeah. in it. Oh, God. Right. Um, what else? Oh, Terry, Terry, Terry. You had some great news for you. Some amazing news for you. Flack, Flack, oh, your yeah. favourite show which got cancelled, has been saved by Amazon. Amazon. Excited and thrilled. I bet that's got loads of unrealistic threesomes in it. I mean, it's got unrealistic (laughs) everything in it, but, you know. Oh, it does, yeah. Of course it does. Big time. (laughs) Okay, anything else? There was an announcement um, this morning, which is embargoed until Monday. You know when it says embargoed till... Am I the only person? When you get an embargo for midnight, one minute past midnight on a day, on Monday, you're confused about whether they mean first thing Monday morning or last thing at night on Monday. I always have this. I think we're safe because this is going out on Monday and I think this is first thing. Anyway, Ben Wishaw has been cast as the lead role in This Is Going To Hurt, which is the AMC BBC adaptation of um, the brilliant Adam Kay memoir about being a doctor in the NHS. And it's this book, I, I, I kind of vaguely know, I met Adam Kay a couple of times and he's, he's a brilliant talent. And he wrote this this um this kind of book about extraordinary experiences he's had witnessing um, what happens in the NHS. And it became a proper massive word of mouth phenomenon. This book has sold millions and millions and millions, still selling millions and millions now. Um, and it's quite, and I think it is quite, quite, quite brilliant that Ben Wishaw is going to effectively play him, play Adam Kay in the series version. Exciting. Mm. Um, High Town, do you see, got renewed for a second season. That's good. We yep. enjoyed that. That was fun. Uh, the only other thing to mention is that John Favreau has exclusively revealed that The Mandalorian Season 2 is on track for October, which we kind of knew anyway, but that's good to know. This is the way. Anyway, time now for this week's reviews. And first up this week, we have The Return of the Sinner, which landed months ago in the US and sees the return of Bill Pullman's detective Harry Ambrose, who this time zeroes in on the plight of Matt Bomer's high school teacher, who is implicated in the death of his friend and of the not at all suspicious act of digging a grave in the woods. (laughs) Boyd, we loved the first two seasons of this one, but is year three unrepentant? Well... It's interesting because I watched the first few episodes. Weirdly, this series, right, has had a very odd has a very odd distribution situation because you could have watched this series for a while now on you on iTunes in this country, yep. and I think on Amazon Prime if you paid for it, if like you paid to pay for, for it, yes. so you had to pay for the whole thing. And of course, I did because I'm a huge fan <sighs> of The Sinner. Um, and now it's coming to Netflix. Shown on the USA Network in America, Netflix acquires it, waits an inordinate long time so that they can show the whole thing in one go. But I, my view of this series slightly changed between watching, I would say, the first two or three episodes and then catching up with the rest. So I've now finished it earlier this week. And to start with, I thought it, it maintained the quality of the previous two. So as you say, the, the, the so it's now gone from, this was billed as an anthology series when it first started. Uh, Jessica Biel start, was, was the main star of the first series with Bill Pullman investigating why her character randomly, seemingly stabbed mm. to death someone on the beach in broad daylight. And then the second episode, she wasn't, she's still producing it. Bill Pullman's character was the was the was still the main character. Now this time investigating a little kid who poisoned his parents. So it's kind of like, and then now this time, as you say, is this car crash where this guy comes back to see his old college mate, um, and for for, for for mysterious reasons, and they drive off together, leaving his pregnant wife at home, and they have this fatal car crash. That's not a spoiler. That is the premise. And to start with, I think it's it's 
it's a really gripping idea. I mean, I was fascinated by that. It does a very good job of establishing these the, these two guys as interesting characters. What is the connection between them? You know, maybe they're gay. Maybe they had to. You know, maybe they kind of fell in love with each other at college. It, it keeps you gripped. And I love Bill Pullman. I, f- I think he's mm. so brilliant as Harry Ambrose. He, Harry Ambrose has a, has a kind of, you know, has kind of like a leg issue. He's kind of hobbling around for the entire series. But more than that, almost every time he, he kind of look, he, he has to do anything physical. He's pained. He's in pain throughout this whole thing. He's like constantly in pain and he does it so brilliantly. You're like, absolutely believe that this guy, poor guy's racked with pain every step of the way emotionally as well as physically and i think he does a brilliant job of of portraying this guy but then what happens i think in in this series is about halfway through you're kind of gripped all the way and you know all the way in the previous seasons they brilliantly they they withhold information very cleverly and they give you flashbacks that slowly and steadily depict the kind of mystery and what's going unveil the mystery but about halfway through it slightly runs out of of storyline i feel this season to the point where almost like it just becomes like a cat and mouse thriller by the end, the last couple <laughs> few episodes. And you're like, they could have done this in about six episodes, but because the format has been established um, of eight episodes in each series, and it just feels like they kind of spun it out. And and I, I have to say, I found the lack of twists. Like there are no, there, like each series season before has has big killer twists as it goes all the way through. This doesn't really. I feel it's quite plot light for this kind of show. And in the end, it is fascinating because it's kind of all about you know the weird. So the link between I think the link between each season, apart from Bill Pullman's Bill, Bill Pullman's character, is thematically extreme religious and philosophical ideas. People gripped in the grip of a kind of a set of ideas that are quite bizarre and odd and dangerous and it, and it, for example there's a whole explained explanation of nietzschean philosophy in this series <laughs> they have to touch upon nietzsche as the americans call him and that's the link and that's interesting but it just peters out a bit and i was a bit frustrated by how there needed to be some something else something more in the latter part of the series but you know I still think it's a really good, fascinating show. Terry, how many of these did you watch? Well, I'm actually gutted to hear that because I watched the first three. And yeah, yeah I felt like you did at the beginning. So so now I'm devastated yeah. to hear that it, it kind of careers Sorry. off. Because cause I did the way, what I love about this is the exploration of psyche and in each kind of protagonist psyche you know mm. the jessica beale season especially like how they broke into her mind and her past and her memories and and kind of the trauma and how that led to the event i just thought it was done so brilliantly and it properly took you inside a broken psyche and that's what you get this th- first three episodes this man um played by matt bomer it's just like you sense the kind of this excruciating torment he's in even though you don't know why and kind of his mind's playing tricks with him and there's kind of hallucinations and he's clearly grappling with memory and I I found it fascinating the tone of it is gorgeous helped I think by the amazing we should mention the score I think I just think the it's um the composer is Ronnie Kirchman I just think this string score just kind of really feeds that tone that kind of really eerie um eerie tone I love that so I am gutted to hear that because I enjoyed the first three um and to hear there's no twists or no massive huge kind of 
plot moments that because that's you think about when I think about the Sinner season one where that went yeah. in the latter half and I remember saying this to you James right when you started yeah. watching it I said you don't it's not what you think it is so because you watch it you know and she stabs him to death and you think it's kind of a, a you know why did she do it you know basic exploration of something bad happened to her and she did this and here's why. But obviously it went into such fucked yeah. up dark places that <laughs> there were certain episodes I could not believe what I was seeing on screen Same. in a mainstream kind of, you know, Jessica Beale starring USA Network thriller. I thought it was extraordinary some of the places they went to. And I think that bravery and storytelling and boldness is what has made The Sinner so compelling. Um and if that isn't present in the second half of this, then it's going to suffer by comparison, isn't it? Which always happens with anthology yeah. series. There are still, let me just say, I might be being slightly harsh. There are still, there are still very daring, dark, really dark moments. There are, I would say, all the way through moments. I just felt it was, sli- I just felt it was, sli- I might be being slightly harsh, but I think the first two, I think, were so mm. brilliant relentlessly all the way through. And maintain them. It, it did feel that there's a there's a drop off for me in this one, but you may disagree. And there are and, it, and then there are some audacious. There are still a lot of audacious moments. I have to say all the way through. I mean, there are there really are. It's just it's slightly it just gets extended. I felt beyond beyond all beyond what it needed I, towards the end. And I agree. The music, but I just want to say, yeah, I'm so right about the music. It's relentless, yeah. and also the music is relentless, and it's absolutely you almost cannot imagine. Um, this the atmosphere and tone of it without no. the music it's so key to it yeah i this is this series has actually taken a lot of flack online a lot of people seem to dislike it um i think it's slightly different the first what i always love about this show and i think season one is definitely the best of the sinner um is that it's a little bit stranger and more extreme than other shows of this ilk. and it it dares to go places that you just mm. don't think it will do. And I think this one is the same and it goes to very extreme places. And I found, because it's a real examina- examination of sort of masculinity and sort of the male psyche as part of this, which I found very interesting. I think Matt Bowman's great. I think Chris Messina, who plays Nick, is outstanding. Yeah. And the chemistry between them is magnetic. And I think that the whole believability of the story hinges on the believability of that relationship. And they nailed it with those performances with that casting Uh, so i think that's really really good and i think it is one of these shows where it very very slowly unspools information but i mean as you were kind of both alluding to uh season one just is a proper rug pull every five minutes you've no idea where it's going and every episode you're like oh my fucking christ uh season two has that to an extent this one less so this is more of a kind of a slow burn psychological character study Mm. than it is a sort of a twisty turny plot thing it's also a slightly different format he's always taken that set that harry ambrose is someone who sees something and wants to understand it. He wants to get to the bottom of it. And it's not necessarily about guilt or innocence. It's about mitigating circumstances and motive and understanding why things have happened. And this takes a slightly different format. Obviously, without spoilers, I don't want to talk about it in, in detail, but it does take a different a, a different tack. And as a result, it has a different rhythm and a different pacing to it. Uh, and as Boyd says, it does become not exactly generic, but certainly less interesting and complex i think in the in the final chapters of this story but i i, I you watched the whole thing i did watch, the whole, watch thing. the whole yes, thing yes i've seen all yeah. of it and uh, did, you, did you did you think it t- it t- petered out a bit? i know what you mean yes there was a point where yeah. i was just like okay so this is this is what's happening now that's fine um 
but I, and yeah. I, I was a touch disappointed. Yeah, I was a touch yeah. disappointed. It's like that, it's weird because you're right. There are it is what makes it special is is the audacity of it and the daring and the, and there are those moments even right up until the final episode. After, in fact, there's almost like psychological twists mm. in a way because a lot of this is and as you say, what I think partly white feels more conventional to me anyway. It relies quite heavily on the old the cop is is the same as the perpetrator yeah. idea, yeah. which I feel is quite a tired. You know, thing that I've seen in a lot. It, it, it's not, and that is that becomes the thing, doesn't it? Without, I don't think that's a spoiler. It's and 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 to me, it's like, well, you know, with 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 the now the way it explores that <laughs> has incredible moments. Yes. to be fair, yes. I'm almost borderline preposterous moments, but, and this and this series has always trod that line, isn't yeah. it, between mm-hmm. preposterousness <laughs> and daring, and and this series does as well. It's just that I just felt they could have given you something that's a little bit more as it goes on but anyway I think what it's they slightly nitpicking partly maybe. try to do with this series certainly far more than they do in seasons one or two is they try and get you into the head of Harry Ambrose it's a lot more about mm. him than the other seasons yeah. have been so but then it yeah. almost gets to the point in the season where he becomes the central focus and almost the subject of the investigation is less almost becomes secondary to getting inside Harry's head and while that's very interesting I don't think it works quite as well that said that said and we have said you know it does run out of steam a little bit it may not have uh may not have as strong an ending but i do think this is definitely worth seeing i don't think for one second anyone should mm. not watch it or if they like the first two should skip it this is great television i do recommend it enormously it's just maybe not the best season of this otherwise excellent show uh but that is the sinner season three which does drop on netflix on friday june the 19th Next up this week, we have The Great, a satirical comedy starring Elle Fanning as Catherine the Great, Empress of Russia, and Nicholas Holt as her husband Peter, the Imperial Bellend. Based on Tony (laughs) McNamara's play, this is an anachronistic, colourful tale that includes the line, Big Russian beards look like men are eating a whole beaver and that will not do. But... Terry White, does the rest of it live up to the beaver chat? So, you know, I'm going to address the elephant in the room, first of all, which is going to be the... Everybody's just going to talk about this show in context of the favourite. Um, Yorgos Lanthimos's film, Oscar-winning, BAFTA-winning, everything-winning, deservedly. Incredible film. Um, and it's both kind of unfair but also inevitable because obviously Tony McNamara did was a screenwriter on The Favourite and it shares a lot of DNA with The Favourite. And, it, you know, it's it's another female monarch, obviously, uh, Catherine the Great, and it kind of treads that same line between slapstick and drama. I, just to cut to the chase, I fucking love this. Like, I was <laughs> laughing my head off within the first five minutes. It's got that same shock value because obviously a lot of it is contemporary contemporary i can't say that word contemporary a lot of it is is right for the period there we go and other stuff is just you know the, like that some of the language is obviously not and they kind of you, you can tell they've gone fuck being historically accurate we're just going to make brilliant telly and that's kind of what they've done they've gone full throttle at that the facts don't quite line up in terms of you know what she was doing when she was doing it but who <laughs> fucking cares because this is brilliant so the basic premise is you're joining it's this six month period from when Catherine is shipped off um, to marry um, Nicholas, the amazing Nicholas Holt, we should just say. Mm. And um, she becomes the Empress of Russia and it's the six months kind of where she's almost, I'd say, radicalised into becoming, you know, this great feminist warrior who then overthrows him. Um, and essentially, you know, she she 
um, devotes herself to Russia. Now, the the line they tread is a really delicate one because I have to say, and it's it's kind of right to to call it a comedy, but also not because the dramatic scenes in this are actually really great and actually really moving at times, and that is pretty much all down to. Elle Fanning, who is just, I think, absolutely remarkable in this. Like, she's funny. She's incredibly powerful. She's the dramatic scene she does. She commits to them like it's a drama, not like she's doing a dramatic scene in a comedy, if you know what I mean. Um, Nicholas Holt is hilarious. I mean, the writing is hilarious. I was writing down some of the lines and they're just, <laughs> well, yeah, it said, you know, women are for seeding, not reading. Um, yeah. When she's talking it, about wanting to educate. It is a joke. You are slow of mind and wit. <laughs> and then he says, I am of gentle heart and massive cock. <laughs> Which, you know, not the first bellend to say something like that. And Nicholas Holt is amazing because there is a way to play this character, which is pure cartoonish and pure play it just for laughs and he doesn't because he is very funny but also he brings out this incredible kind of insecurity to him and you kind of I'm not going to say you warm to him but you understand where his impotence and his rage and his kind of volatility comes from and it's from these kind of deep-rooted insecurities he desperately needs to be loved he surrounds himself with idiots um who basically let him do anything he wants and are just massively out for his favor does it sound familiar to any any uh, men we know in great positions of power um but it's just i love that line it trod and I, I did find it incredibly moving at time and i thought the dramatic scenes work really well it is there is a, a a bit of shock value going on here with it, where it is some of the lines some of the language it is quite you know there's violence in there there's heads on sticks it's it it doesn't flinch away from that stuff but yeah i i had a lot of time for this i greatly 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 enjoyed it james what did you think i'm desperate to great. know did you I like it i thought it was great yeah because the screenwriting is exquisite like the dialogue is sort of effervescent mm. like it's it's really fun and it was one of these things where i didn't want to like it for, for reasons i know I, I kind of decided going in i probably wasn't going to love it i don't know why but then i i found myself laughing consistently despite myself because the dialogue is so well done and Holt in particular his performance is genius because you've fucking hate him because he's mm. an absolute bellin and yet and yet there's something about his delivery that is so absurd and over the top and she's she's a lot of fun as well this hopelessly naive there's a wonderful conversation she has with her sort of chambermaid where it's her wedding night and her chambermaid asks her if she understands what's about to happen on her wedding night and she gives this beautiful speech yeah. of what she thinks sex is and it's just so <laughs> perfectly delivered and then the reaction to that is also perfect yeah it's there's there's lots lots to enjoy here i thought it was i thought it was absolutely delightful and it is beautifully shot shot on shot in Hever castle mm. in kent and yeah it's a it's a it's a lot of a lot of fun uh i think the yeah the compa- comparisons to the favorite are, are unfortunate because the favorite is absolutely staggering uh it's very very good indeed mm. and this isn't doesn't reach those sort of dizzying heights but it is yeah definitely worth a watch boy did you uh did you have as much fun with this yeah i have to say i was really taken aback by it because um i think for, i would say for you know, two thirds to three quarters of the first episode, it's a total romp, mm. and, and isn't it? And it's got it's it, it's really funny. Um, it's it's got a kind of heightened um, edge to it, and it's you know, it's almost like it's really anachronistic and all of that. And I loved it, and and you know, I felt it was it was um, bubbling along at a pace, and it was really enjoying it. But then in the that the last the last part of it is fucking bowls you over yeah. by how um, it suddenly takes a serious turn. 
And I thought, but I think they ex- executed it brilliantly because you really, it really works. Um, how just how shocking you're like, you almost like sit back for him because this is what he is doing to her. This is what the bell end actually more, much more than being a bell end. He's a fucking C word. I don't know why I'm yeah. suddenly censoring <laughs> myself when we had a, when we had a swear fest the other week. And, um, and she is, you know, at this point in the story, being tr- being abused horrendously. And I think the way they de- de- deal with that was so clever and brilliantly written and performed, as you say. What fascinates me, though, is there are nine more hours yeah. of this. But that's a that's a big. I don't know. Now I'm fascinated yeah. on, on how they're going to where they're going to take it. But you know, like the favorite, which we'll come to, was a two hour film and, and uh, is phenomenal, absolutely as you say. But how they're going to what they're going to do with the next night, I'm fascinated to see. I just don't know where it's going to. This go. is the thing, and so I haven't seen by any means all ten episodes of this, but I have certainly read that it does run out of steam and maybe becomes a little bit torturous towards the end so which doesn't surprise me in the slightest but uh, i hope maybe that isn't the case but certainly a couple of the reviews that are out there are, are a little bit of that opinion well that is the great um and it drops all in one go on stars play on thursday june the 18th Finally this week, we have The Luminaries. This is an adaptation of Eleanor Catton's 2013 novel. This sees Eve Houston as Anna Wetherall, an adventurer who sails from England to New Zealand in the 19th century to begin a new life, only for things to go very, very badly. This was a Booker-winning novel, but is it a Boyd-winning show? (laughs) Um, So it's interesting to bear in mind that this novel was an 800 and 50 page epic which was kind of as much about the the form of novel writing and um the possibilities of uh kind of narrating from the point of view of multiple characters and of telling different versions of one story one mystery story as it was about the actual mystery and romance at the center of it and in fact just to just to just to you know, make how clear just how bold and ambitious the novel was. The foot, it's in twelve chapters, mirroring the signs of the zodiac. There's a whole zodiac theme going on of astrology and all of that. And the chap, the first chapter is about three hundred and fifty pages, huh. and then each chapter gets gets shorter and shorter as it goes on. So the final one is literally like half a page. But the first chapter depicts the events, the the crucial events of the mystery that's at the centre of this story from 12 different (laughs) characters' points of view, right? None of whom are the central characters we meet in this TV version. (laughs) Those characters only arrive later on. So it's an incredibly... Now, and Eleanor Catton herself has adapted her own unbelievably densely packed novel into a six-hour, a mere six-hour miniseries. And from what I've seen the first two, and I think she's done a pretty incredible job. So what she hones in on are the characters, as you say, Eve Hewson's character of Anna Wetherill, who arrives in this New Zealand um, small town, which has gold in it. So there's a gold rush to come to this small town in New Zealand in 1866, 1865, 1866. She meets on the boat over Himish Patel's character, Emery Staines, who's like a gold prospector. She wants she wants to change her life completely and turn it around um, he's arriving. So they kind of these two meet and she's drawn to him. They flirt over albatrosses. They, <laughs> right. They flirt over albatrosses and they vow to meet up when they arrive in, in the, in their new, in their new home, basically. But they're weirdly scuppered by 
um, the char- Eva Green's character, who is this weirdly manipulative, astrologically obsessed, mind-reading, fortune-telling <laughs> woman, um, who is, and you're like, why is she interfering in these people's lives for a start? How are they connected to the opening crime which is committed, which you see a crime committed in the very first scene? Um, and of, of a kind of character, a reclusive character killed in a in an outhouse somewhere, you know, miles away. So it's all about there's a murder. These two characters are somehow going to be connected to it. It it hover it, it cuts between two timelines where these characters arrive in this New Zealand small town and the and the murder that's being investigated six months later. You have to try and keep track of these two timelines. It's complicated. It's 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 for a BBC One prime, and I know it's like you know it's 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 kind of period beautiful lavish drama, which is traditional BBC One Sunday night stuff. But this is much more ambitious and complex and difficult than the normal BBC One nine o'clock Sunday night drama. But I think if you give it time and if you go with it, I think it will pay rich dividends. Terry, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's start with the good stuff looks amazing and eve Houston and himish patel are both i think incredible their their chemistry is insane you fully believe when they first meet <laughs> albatrosses or no albatrosses you fully <laughs> believe that they have this connection um, and you fully buy into there being this something more cosmic, potentially drawing them together. Um, but I wrote down in massive letters, why is it so dark? Like, seriously, <laughs> like I had to rewatch big chunks of it because I couldn't, literally couldn't see what was happening. It was like the long night on acid. Um, and the jumping around in timelines, I found, I honestly found it desperately confusing because... I didn't even realise it was jumping around in timelines until I realised the character was in a very different position than we'd last seen her in and was like, oh shit, did I miss something? And I rewound it to watch it again. And it took me a couple of goes to realise that this time jump was happening, six, what, six months. and that mm. It's Boyd's favourite in-media res device nine oh. months earlier. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, and, you know, mis- a murder mystery and some horoscopes or something. Like, I found it. I don't think I'm a stupid person. I, I like to think I'm not a stupid person. I found it really hard to follow. I found it super confusing. I don't mind challenging telly. I think we should... You know, not everything has to be in this instant hit of gratification and understanding exactly what's happening and have it delivered to you on a plate and all of that. I don't think that's how it should be. But I found it hard to watch and hard to want to get to the end because I just couldn't quite get what was happening. And to be honest, those two, I I think the best thing about it is is those two. I think they're both spectacular. I found Eva Green a little bit, underwhelming to be honest and I don't know if that's because she's she feels like it's the character Eva Green now plays if you know what I mean like it felt like Eva Green being Eva Green and she's a remarkable actor but I I found her a little bit underwhelming and I think those Mm -hmm. two everybody's leading on her and everybody's you know she's being kind of touted as an Eva Green drama going for the for those two guys their their performances are incredible their chemistry is incredible but you won't necessarily have a, a Scooby-Doo clue what's going on. <laughs> I, see, I 100% agree with you. Like Everyone was banging on about how good Eva Green is, and I was really underwhelmed. I thought her character was 
just felt a little bit overwrought to me. I didn't ring true. Whereas Himesh Patel, who I really liked in yesterday, uh, and I think Eve Hewson, I think they're both outstanding in this, and it really works. But you're right, it's it's very confusing. Like the story of this, it, it sort of it meanders back and forward on this nine month timeline, and you're never really sure what the fuck is happening. And there's it's like a a murder mystery with astrology, and then someone leaking gold out of the seams of her dresses, and someone who's brother and someone's been killed but you're not quite sure who that person is so you're not do i care i'm un- mm. unclear it's 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 a little bit baffling and i do think it's something that bears either re-watching or paying a lot of attention to mm. this is certainly not a dual screening type tv show um but there's i think you get quite invested i certainly got very invested in houston's character's fate quite early on so she she has some bad lucks right off the boat literally uh and i i, I really wanted to see how that played out and but whether I will stick with this is kind of, I'm not entirely sure. It requires an awful lot of uh, brain space that I'm not sure I can spare for it. Um, but we'll see. Like, like I say, I'm fascinated. I'm invested in the characters. I do think those two, I don't know from what Boyd said, whether they are the leads or whether they're just two of 12 leads that will inevitably become oh, no, they bamboozling. Are. But They are in this version. I mean, as you said, believe it or not, I mean, I totally agree. It is really confusing. And I think, you know, and what's interesting is it, almost the novel is about confusing narratives mm. do you know what I mean and I think there's a real it's really difficult to when you're doing a TV a visual adaptation of a thing that's so much about complication complication is kind of the whole point of the book and that and that's made clear all the way through and it's hard to do that mm. in a TV thing and I think people will just find it fucking confusing and which is a shame because I think I'm sure you know the, I thought the second episode had some really great moments and, and I will carry on watching it but yeah it is it is semi-bewildering yeah it's an odd one, but, you know, maybe worth a look, certainly if you enjoyed the book. I mean, if you made it through what sounds like an incredibly complicated book, then you might skip through this, so uh, go for it. But either way, this is a BBC One adaptation, and this begins on Sunday, June 21st at 9pm, with another episode on Monday the 22nd. Also out this week, Boyd, is the Politician yes. Season 2. Yes. Have you seen it? I have, and I think it's still embargoed. I mean, I, I, I think it's, and I think... I mean, you know, I don't think I'm allowed to review it fully, but um, let's just say... It's a thing. You've seen it. <laughs> they did... Well, the bold thing they did in the end of season one was, um, whether you liked the politician or not, is they did jump forward in time and showed you... They established in the last episode of season one of the politician, which was all about this guy, Ben Platt's character, wanting to become the school, you know, the the, the head of... The student president mm. of his school. It then jumped ahead in time and showed you that the next phase in his ambition is to become a senator and he fought and, he, and he's fighting a a woman who's been in the position as a senator for decades literally decades um and bet Midler's in it as her kind of you know main advisor um gwyneth paltrow's back as ben platt's mum, who's also gets embroiled in politics this time so it's a really in, and it's, it's a really interesting um i'm gonna use the word milieu <laughs> new york politics in you know 2020 now you know, in, with everything that's going on, I mean, obviously it was filmed, uh, 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 I don't know, last year or whatever, but it's a fascinating world. Um, can't, I don't think I can review it for, but I would say it's, it's, it, I would say, I mean, it, there's amazing stuff. And by the way, and the other thing they established, again, not spoiling, in, in, in that last episode was this woman, this senator who's been in power for years and years is in a thruple with two guys. So she's, she's got a husband and their boyfriend. Unrealistic threesomes. <laughs> Everywhere. Yeah, unrealistic threesomes is the theme. <laughs> and that becomes the big, you know, will, is, is that going to scupper her whole thing? And will Ben Platt's character use this information against her? So it's a very, it's an, inc- it's an incredibly interesting premise. 
the execution I'll leave other people to judge. Wow. There's a sneak, mm. sneaky little preview of the politician there. Anything else, Boyd, this week that people should be aware of? Yeah. Um, Terry will uh, be excited about My Brilliant Friend, oh, yes. season two, um, which we really liked, I think, season one. That arrives on Friday on Sky Atlantic and now TV. Um, I'm excited about that. There's also uh, a, there's a one-off drama, which I think people should watch on BBC Three. So I'm leafing through the pages of my magazine. Um, and that is called Make Me Famous. And that arrives on Wednesday on iPlayer. It's written by Reggie Yates. Yes, Reggie Yates, the presenter... Um, he's done some acting, but it's really interesting. It's all about what happens. It's a one-off drama about what happens when a reality TV star um, kind of, when he doesn't become as famous as he he wants. And it's about the aftermath of reality TV on people. And I, I think it's a really interesting um, area to pursue, to look at, um, because there have been really dark things have happened to to people who have taken part, you know, in Love Island, for example. And it explores all of that, explores, you know, the the kind of psychological effect that wanting instant fame can have on your life and then people being you know interested in your life and then not so that's really interesting and that'll be also on bbc one the following week um and there's a weird sci-fi show called spides have you heard of that i saw that on, on sci-fi, sci-fi yeah and- yeah from tuesday don't know what that is. which i've read I'm shocked and appalled no, we didn't review it, it naturally <laughs> there you go uh yeah i think that's about it uh do we have a pick of the week yes the great yeah i think the great yeah uh, I like The Great a lot. I, uh, it'd be either The Great or The Sinner for me. Watch them both. Go for it. Yeah. Um, right. Before we go, it is, of course, time for the highlight of this particular podcast, the Banshee segment named after the very first Banshee, the show, Banshee, uh, where we take an old show and recommend it for your modern viewing pleasure. Who would like to kick off this week's proceedings? I will. So I want to Banshee, and please, boy, don't say you've already done it. Uh, the Job Lot... No. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. The job lot, starring Boyd's friend and ours, Russell Tovey. <laughs> so this was basically the office in a job centre. Um. So it's a West Midlands job centre, and it's got this. I mean, the cast. I have to say, is incredible. Um. Sarah Hadland, Russell Tovey, Nick Mohammed, um, Adil Akhtar. I mean, like a in- incredible wide cast. Um. And it's very much about. Life in this job centre, that, you know, classic British sitcom thing of, you know, their unfulfilled dreams and secret hopes mixed with the banality and mundanity of, of life, their relationships with each other. Um, and I actually remember this getting, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but getting a bit of a kicking at the time. And it, I think it was on main ITV for, for the first season moved to ITV2 for seasons two and three. But I think this had a lot of charm. A lot of that, I have to say, was down to Tovey, who kind of plays the Tim character, who's the the moral centre and the heart of the show. And he's quite naive in some respects and optimistic and kind. And um, But I actually remember quite enjoying this and thinking it was funny yeah it was really underappreciated it was yeah it was a proper mainstream yeah. sitcom wasn't it but with as you say this brilliant cast incredible but it was funny yeah it was really funny and and uh no, i thought it was great funnily enough russell tovey told a story i think on the on a recent episode of his talk up podcast about how he was filming the job lot in the in and in the day and then he at the same time he was doing a big play um at the royal court 
um, about the gay footballer, that play, which I've forgotten the name of annoyingly. And um, he was, so be doing, literally be working from first thing in the morning, you know, till mm. last thing at night. And then he got ill. He got food poisoning. And he talks about how there's, there's two episodes of the job lot they filmed where he was, he'd lost weight. He was like pale and ill and a wreck, basically. And he, but he, had, he just carried on filming. And he said, if you watch whenever they come up, the way they repeat it, ITV2, he's like gaunt, pale <laughs> bloke. It looks like he's about to die in the middle. So watch out for that when you rewatch the job. Well, lot. I think, Sen, I think it's on both actually Amazon Prime and Netflix and presumably BritBox as well. So whichever oh. your preferred platform is, it will be there. Excellent. James, you'd hate it. I, I, I've already gathered that. Yeah, I've not added it to my viewing list. Oh, Mr. Viewing List. Add this to your viewing list then. Um, I'm going to pick Deep Water, which was a Australian miniseries, an Australian crime drama in 2016 that was shown on BBC4 at the time. It's now on Netflix. And um, I was just flicking through Netflix stuff, and I saw it. And I was reminded. I was like, "Oh, that was brilliant!" And it was what it was a um, it was a dramatization based on the real case of murders of gay men in the Bondi Beach area. And um, it starts off with um, a detective played by Yale Stone, Tori Lustigman, Yale Stone, who is in um, Orange Is the New Black, and Noah Taylor is the other cop. Noah Taylor, who's brilliant mm. in everything, um, you know, who's in Shine, Game of Thrones, etc., Peaky Blinders, and. Um, they investigate this brutal murder of a gay man in, in Bondi Beach. And it turns out there's a whole series of cases, similar cases going back years and, and, and that have not been reported properly because they didn't want to deal with the fact that these were hate crimes. These were homophobic killings. And it's an incredibly, it's a beautifully made, uh, riveting story, really interesting dealing with kind of the bigotry of the time in this, in this community in Australia and a gang of youths who were this horrendous gang who were attacking uh, men. And, um, I just remember it being a, a, a kind of one of the best. It's only four episodes. It's four hours. So you can, c- kind of watch it all eff- effectively in one go, but it's a really great um, show, I think. Deep Water on Amazon. I think it's also on BritBox as well, actually. Deep Water. Okay. I um, mm. mine, is, mine is actually one that I was going to talk about earlier when we were talking about title sequences, because it's another show whose title sequences I used to, I used to sit through. But I want to talk about Weeds, uh, which is the Genji Kohan oh. sort of black comedy drama satire type thing, uh, which started in 2005 and starred Mary Louise Parker, who is also awesome in all things, but most particularly as Amy Gardner in The West Wing, uh, as a kind of widowed mother of two who begins selling marijuana in the sort of suburban community of Agrestic to maintain her a sort of middle-class lifestyle. And it's, it's a weird, almost sort of comedic, satirical, anti-breaking bad where she becomes more organised and she sets up a distribution network and a cover and her own strain of weed, which she calls MILF, um, and tries to stay out of jail. Uh, and it's really funny it's blackly comic she's great in it this ran for eight years actually so actually went for quite a long time Uh, and the title uh, sequence has the the little boxes song that runs through it which is perfectly kind of sums up the tone of the show but uh, really really good weeds uh, with Mary Louise Parker um, I, I recommend it are they doing a, yes yes are oh, yes, a Boyd, yes. Yeah, they're you doing very a rightly yeah. point yeah. out that was one of the other reasons I was yeah. going to mention this and then completely <laughs> forgot to do it uh, at the end of last year they did announce that Mary Louise Parker was going to come back for a, a spin-off show I think it was called Weeds 420 um, Victoria Morrow is 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 uh, was one of the Weeds writers doing it I don't know if, uh, if uh, Genji Kohan's involved in this but uh, Mary Louise Parker is returning to the rock so that's that's pretty exciting yeah yeah and that is weeds 
Okay, great. Well, that is it for another episode of the Pilot TV podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And we really hope you enjoyed it enough to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Much like Aces of Rare did when they said, come for the TV stuff, stay for the in-depth sociolinguistic analysis of the C-word. If you feel you need more bellendry in your social media feed, then feel free to add the three of us at James C. Dyer, at Terry underscore White, and at Boyd Hilton. Pilot TV's unrealistic threesome will be back next week when there'll be a mystery <laughs> afoot, one that can only be solved by Perry Mason. Pilot out.